Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. But yeah, I think it just all culminated and I just got into this headspace of like, I just can't, I can't like do this anymore. <laughs> Being in fifth yeah. grade and just that exhausted, like I, I don't want to live anymore. I was too scared to actually do it. I remember being sad. I didn't want my brother to have that in his life. I was just scared where I would go or what would happen. So then I was just kind of leaning more towards self-mutilation and like obsessing with death. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me, I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls and the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives and that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you, what makes you the absolutely unique human that you are. Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story, what happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hey beautiful souls, can I just tell you that every week when I come to record this section of the podcast, I'm thinking to myself, Wow, this is such an amazing episode because every single week I'm speaking with the most amazing humans, like seriously amazing. I actually feel like I want to cry when I think about the goodness in each and every one of them and what they've been through and thought and felt and managed in their lifetime so far. And this week is just so special because it is absolutely a masterclass in when a kid's home life sends them off the rails. And I don't know about you, but when I turned 13, every time there was any kind of an issue at home, my dad would start ranting about how I must be on drugs now that I was a teenager. And I'd be like, huh? I'm the straightest kid I know. That's not to say there were like 
a whole bunch of crazy kids at my school who were doing who knows what, but I definitely wasn't one of them. But becoming more and more disconnected from your parents for whatever reason is much more likely to send us off on a path of self-destruction than if our parents are connected, listening, understanding, mentoring, all the things most of us never get. And Amanda was no exception to this. Her parents were divorced when she was five and Amanda was regularly left at home alone with her little brother and increasingly feeling responsible for her mother's changing moods. There was anger and abuse at home and this accelerated when her stepfather came on the scene. By the time Amanda was 10 years old, the abuse was so bad, she was suicidal. She was consciously thinking about death and self-harm as a 10-year-old. By 16, she was drug and alcohol addicted. This is the story of when a child's home life sends them spiraling out of control. And it's so important for us all to understand that a kid like Amanda, she had absolutely no one to turn to to help her out of a living hell. Please join me in hearing Amanda's story. Hey, Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Dot, I'm super excited to be here. Thank you. Just tell us a bit about where did you grow up and who was in your family? So I grew up kind of a lot of different places. I get the joke, people always ask if I was an army brat or something, but I just say, no, my mom just moved us around a lot. So mostly it was me and my younger brother, who's two years younger, and my mom, because my parents got divorced when I was five. And I was born in Kentucky, and then we moved basically every year the whole time I was a kid. So I lived in Indiana, Wyoming, Ohio, Wisconsin, um, and I just moved to Colorado from Minnesota. And now I've been here in Colorado for a little over 12 years, but definitely moved around a lot as a kid. Yeah, that's a lot of moving, isn't it? That must have been hard when you got to school school because you'd be always a new kid I guess. Yeah that was very awkward and I'm a super shy I mean people probably wouldn't guess it now to know me but I'm introverted and I was very shy and really 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 like painfully desperately self-conscious and so yes walking into a new school situation every time was pretty just yeah uncomfortable to say the least. Yeah, <laughs> and there was absolutely. one year I remember we had to Usually my mom was good about starting us at the beginning of the year. So there were other new kids or whatever, but there was one year I had to start even in the middle of the school year. And that was just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, that's hard, isn't it? Especially when you're a shy kid, it's really hard to do that. So you say your parents divorced when you were five. So when your mum's moving around everywhere, is your dad anywhere or did you just not have contact with him? He just went and did his own thing. He mostly was in Colorado. And I think that's why I ended up here is because I've always just kind of wanted to be near him, even though he doesn't live here anymore. But yeah, he stayed in Colorado. And I remember there were times he didn't want us to move, I guess. I would pick up on some of the drama between him and my mom because it it would make it harder for him to see us but as it as it was we really only saw him like once a year or so right that's hard isn't it yeah so do you remember the time when your parents got divorced do you remember because you were only five what do you remember about that oh I remember I had a in my mind would just seem like a totally inappropriate reaction. And I think it sort of haunted me my whole life. But I remember sitting around the table and my dad was really sad. And he said that they were getting a divorce and I just got this huge smile on my face. <laughs> oh. and, and I think, I, I mean, it makes more sense now that I'm older about how I must have picked up that like, if I could make them laugh, I could, I was very, I've always been very empathetic and very sensitive to other people's emotions. So I think in my young brain, I was just like, ah, like trying to make it better with this big smile, or I just didn't know how to handle what that meant. And so I just kind of had this reaction of, well, I'm just gonna laugh. But I always felt really guilty about it later, even though of course, like nobody expected me to have the right response, you know? Yes. Well, you don't really probably know what it means, do you, at five? No. It was just so strange. And I, I've had that happen since where, you know, the urge to maybe smile at a funeral or something where something is just so big that you can't even really process it. So you're just like, ah, and you're not really happy or anything, obviously, but it's just like, that's just a strange involuntary kind of response. Yeah, that's interesting. So tell me a little bit about the relationship between you and your mum when you're a little five-year-old. Oh, I, I can't think of it 
like that area, that time of my life is sort of blank now. Um, I think she was gone a lot. I know that she worked really hard to provide for us. And I think she struggled with her own mental health challenges and maybe substance use challenges. And so I just know that like she still went out. And I remember my childhood just feeling very frightening and lonely. And I've talked to my brother since then, and he experienced that same thing. Like we were home alone at a really young age a lot of the time. We're not really sure like what she was doing, but I know there wasn't a lot of physical affection and there wasn't a lot of, there was a lot of emotional abuse and there was some physical abuse as well. Just like she'd have these bursts of anger and stuff. So it, it was a lot of like, we did have a relationship of, of like friends almost. Like people always commented about how we seemed really good friends. And I, I think I did put her on sort of a pedestal and I always wanted to make her happy. Part of that was because I thought she was cool when I was young. Another part of it was because she was my only parent that I had at that point regularly. And then another part of it was just that she was so volatile that I was always trying to figure out and game out her good side and, and how to make her happy. So, <laughs> yes, absolutely. So how did that sort of play out for you then on a day-to-day -day basis? You, you're obviously at home a lot by yourself. And then when your mum's there, you're scared. What is she actually doing at that time? Yeah, it was a lot of anger, like really, really outrageous anger, like rage, like her eyes would do this. My brother and I talk about how her eyes would change and they would just get really dark and like, just, you know, I'd be doing dishes when I was a kid and she'd come in and just rage about how I was doing them wrong and just like dump everything in the sink. So a lot of like big displays like that, a lot of screaming and punishments, like we got spanked with a wooden spoon and like, you know, things like that. And then I, there were a couple of times if she got really mad where it was like, she'd run at me and pull my hair and slap me and things like that. But mostly it was the emotional outbursts. Yeah. And so that must've been pretty hard. Do you think that's what made you more introverted? I think so. Because when I think about her too, I think maybe that she was like a naturally talented, funny person, like maybe meant to be on a stage or something like she was very, she could be funny and she could be entertaining. And she had a lot of gifts that never really went anywhere. And I don't know if that's because she had kids at a young age or found herself working and being single. I knew she could play the guitar and she liked to act like in school plays. She, she worked in the school district as an interpreter for the deaf. And so she'd always be in the talent shows and so part of me felt like I had to really dim myself around her. Like, I, I think maybe I made this connection that if I get too good at something or if I attract too much attention, like it, it makes her angry or it takes something away from her. So mm -hmm. I think that might've been part of it was just, and then another part was just like never having that safety to like flourish as myself, but I was always like watching myself and always on a guard around her. So I don't think I ever got to even feel like a hundred percent comfortable with myself or what that would be like, right? Like it was just playing defense most of the time. And it sounds like your feelings were never taken into account. It was more about how your mom was feeling, I guess. Yeah. And actually a lot of my feelings and, and who and how I was, was kind of made wrong. Like another, another part of living with her was she was very critical. And I don't think she even realized she was doing it. And this is why as an adult now and, and someone who does like coaching and creativity stuff and why I think she might've had the blocked creativity was because she just make these offhanded comments about my singing voice or my art that I was making, or just these things that like really stabbed into my heart and like hung around and took years of therapy to like <laughs> let go. And, and for her, they were just these like offhanded kind of vicious comments, right? So there was that piece of it as well. Those comments, like, they stay with you for a long time, don't they? Those negative comments from when you're a kid. Yeah. And going back to the whole like smiling at the divorce, like I was struggling with really severe depression at a really young age. And whether that was from growing up with her or the divorce or whatever, or just chemicals in my developing brain. Um, but my sadness and my depression and like my wanting to stay alone a lot, like absolutely was ridiculed even like not only misunderstood, but just completely like unacceptable there. So like I said, I've always been very sensitive and like, you know, tuned into like racial justice issues and animal rights and things like that. And had this bleeding heart for everything from a very young age. And, and then just my own pain and, you know, whatever. And it was always just like, you're being dramatic, turn it off, you know, make a joke of it. That was big in my house was like, get over it, laugh it off, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's hard. So what about like, obviously that, that was your mom. So then your dad's not living with you, but how much time do you spend with him 
in those early years and and what's your relationship like at that time at that time i remember just like missing him so fiercely and visits getting canceled and being devastated but he tried to see us i think he i found out later he tried to see us more than we were actually able to i guess there was some conflict between him and my mom about that sort of thing but we just saw him once a year so it was like a christmas thing but it, it was just it was uncomfortable and it was awkward because we just weren't developing a relationship so it started to feel just strange you know like here's this person that i love and want to see but at the same time i see him once a year and it's just weird and then i felt torn between two camps you know like wanting to make my mom happy and wanting to make him happy and they'd make little remarks about each other from here you know from time to time and there was always comments too from him about how we were dressed like apparently we were poor or something and we weren't like taken care of and so I remember there was this big show about every time we went to see my dad he would have he'd be kind of upset about our ratty clothes and he'd take us shopping and on the one hand I thought this should be fun we're shopping and then on the other hand I was like he's only taking us shopping because we're not good enough and so that kind of created its own issues you know <laughs> he went off and kind of he started his own business and he was really poor for a while but then it started to take off and then he was making quite a bit of money so there was like a class shift to whenever we'd go from my mom's to his house and my mom made a good life for us like we never felt like we were lacking really except when we went to see him then it was kind of apparent with the whole your shoes are worn out your jeans are worn out let me take you shopping it's not good enough that kind of thing and it's easy to step in once a year and do that isn't it <laughs> because you're not well, having yeah. to take responsibility for for two children and yeah. it's very easy to step in and say well this isn't good enough so you mentioned that by what was it year five at school that you were already depressed yes in the fifth grade i was suicidal yeah so tell me about that time because that's extreme isn't it suicidal for a, at what say age 10 or 11 yeah and i was young in my grade i was always the youngest so it could have even been nine or ten wow yeah yeah it, i i wonder at that like I, I think it had to have just been my situation, my circumstances. I, I might have brain chemistry that lends me, you know, I have a disposition maybe towards anxiety or feeling sad or like deep sadnesses and high highs. But, you know, I'm, I'm completely undiagnosed with any mental health issues now. Like I'm balanced and at ease and unmedicated. And so I think all those things back then were just a reaction to neglect and emotional abuse and loneliness and moving around so much and things like that. But yeah, I think it just all culminated and I just got into this headspace of like, I just can't, I can't like do this anymore. <laughs> Being in fifth grade and just that exhausted, like I, I don't want to live anymore. So I ended up settling. I got, I was too scared to actually do it. I remember being sad. I didn't want my brother to like have that in his life. And um, I was just scared. Like where I would go or what would happen. So then I was just kind of leaning more towards self-mutilation and like obsessing with death. So self-harm and like wishing I would get hurt enough to kind of check out, but not officially kill myself. And I think that's later where the drugs and alcohol came in. It was like the loophole, like, well, maybe I'd overdose or maybe I'd get in a car accident or something and not have to actually be responsible for that but then I'd still get my way of not having to live anymore either. I think it's sometimes when you feel that nobody is caring for you then you don't have any care for yourself do you? It's just you just don't really have any value on your own life because nobody's giving you that feeling of value I guess growing up. Yeah and I think I picked up a message like a lot of children of divorce do of like this was my fault somehow. It, it wasn't a secret that neither of my parents really wanted to have kids. And I for sure knew that my dad didn't want to have kids. And, and the way that my mom reacted to me all the time, I just was definitely picking up this message of like, I'm too much or not enough or not doing this right or something. So there was just this heaviness. And then from moving so much, I didn't have a ton of friends. So there was nowhere I really even had this chance to belong or feel right about myself. Yeah. So when you're feeling that low and you're nine or 10, are you speaking to anybody? about it is there anybody that you can tell no there definitely wasn't and and I think part of that was because I had picked up on this message of get over it I don't I don't and actually yeah I just don't think I ever like the whole get over it thing came later as like my mental health deteriorated even more and it became impossible to ignore like social services kind of got involved there was therapists I was institutionalized for two weeks because they thought I was actually going to do something to myself. And that's when I, I really picked up the message of like, this is too much, get over it, just cheer up, you know? <laughs> but mm -hmm. I think at fifth, in the fifth grade, I just don't think I had 
like I was just in all that fear and loneliness and trying to keep her in a good mood as best as I could that I certainly didn't think about trying to talk to her about this thing. I don't think we had that kind of relationship where I was like, I need to talk to you about something, you know? <laughs> yes. Interesting. And, and no teacher or anybody at school ever picked up on that there was an issue. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I feel like we're supposed to be so aware of all of these things now, but maybe a few years ago, it wasn't something that people were looking out for as much. Yeah. And, and moving around. And I think I really was good at pretending like everything was okay. I think that became one of my superpowers, you know, like, again, flashing back to the smiling at the announcement of the divorce, like I just think I learned how to fit in and put on this front or and I think I had this desire to protect her I always was very like loyal to her and so even when things were getting really bad and like there was more abuse I still didn't like anyone saying anything bad about her and I think I was very careful not to like get I didn't want to get her in trouble or like rock the boat or anything I was I certainly internalized that thing like this must be my fault this must be my issue and I think too, I just felt so bad that, yeah, I just didn't even think to reach out with it. It just started to feel normal or like the way I was or something. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. I think sometimes when that's all we know, it's just, it does become our normal. And we just think that this is what, what our life is. We don't, I think some people do. Some people are like, I'm not, I'm not having this, I'm leaving. And other people just are there going, well, this is, this is just how it is. It's, um, mm -hmm. I guess it's just how we all react to it, isn't it? So you were in fifth grade and then you're already suicidal. So what happens when you become a teenager? Uh, when I was a teenager, my mom got remarried and, and a lot of things kind of blew up, but then I thought a lot of things kind of settled would settle down as well when I say blow up I mean like I was so excited about this stepdad and this idea of having a full family that I like lashed out at my dad and was like I hate you and I don't want to talk to you and I tried to burn that bridge pretty thoroughly and then my stepdad actually became abusive so he would get really angry at me and he would lash out and he would hit me and he choked me one time and like certain things like that were starting to happen so then the depression just became like full-on you know, the self-consciousness was increasing as well, being a teenager and like looking at the other girls and thinking they had it all figured out and they were pretty and popular and I was just struggling so much. And so then I started to cut myself. I got into that self-harm situation that is like all too common with a lot of teenagers. And then it became harder to hide that. And eventually like I was being taken to therapists. And like I said, I was put into a hospital for a couple of weeks and there's still the sense of, can we just get on with this? Like nobody knew how to deal with it. I, I think I was really heavily medicated for a time that I don't remember. I do remember that every doctor I went to had a different diagnosis and I got kind of outraged early on. And I now do like activism work around this to take the stigma away about diagnoses coming in from people who don't take the time to get to know you. Like they're just like a doctor will look at you across the table and just say, oh yeah, you have this. So I got like four different diagnoses and like I said, I'm undiagnosed today. So who knows what any of that was, but nobody was asking about my home life and the abuse wasn't coming out. So it was just, it was just kind of a shit show. That's interesting, isn't it? That nobody asks you about your home life. It's so crazy that that wouldn't be something that people want to know what's happening at home because and maybe sorry I was just gonna say and maybe they did but that whole like I need to protect them thing came out because I remember one time I had told a friend my stepdad had done something pretty violent. He like threw me across the room and I told a friend cause I was limping that day. <laughs> She's like, what's going on with you? So she got worried and she told a teacher or something and it ended up that social services came to our door. And by this time, my mom had had two more babies and we all just denied everything. Like, I don't know where you heard that. Everything's fine here. And then when they left, she just lost it on me and was like, do you want your little brothers to not have their father? Do you want him to go to prison? That's what would happen. So I definitely got that message of like, don't talk about what's going on here or else everybody's going to get in trouble. And again, this whole thing about something specially wrong with me was happening because he wasn't hitting my brothers. He was just coming after me and he didn't hit my mom. So it was easy to just think like, there's something wrong with me. It's my fault. Um, so yeah, if a doctor ever did ask about home life, I probably did downplay it too. Yes, absolutely. It's like terrifying, isn't it? Because you're really trapped there. You can't, you can't speak to anybody. But I was just interested when you were talking about the self-harm stuff. Is that something that you did 
because is it something that you just figured out how to do is hurt yourself or do you see images of it somewhere? I'm always interested in where that comes from for young girls. Yeah, I, I think I just figured it out on my own because I was always thinking about dying. And I think it probably came from like experimenting. Like I always had it in my mind that I would, I, I'm, I'm, hesitating to say, I hope maybe just put like a trigger warning at the beginning of the episode or something, but yeah, I always just figured I would like cut my wrists. And so probably the self-cutting was like probably trying to like ease into that and then realizing right. like, oh, I could just do this thing. And what it was for me was like a, like a release of all the emotions that I couldn't share with anybody or have validated or even express like in words. But if I gave myself a physical pain to actually tend to and deal with, it felt like there was this release of pressure, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's really it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So so do you remember anything of when you had to go away for two weeks and, and when you came back, had anything changed or it was really just, you need to get over this now? And is that pretty much what the message was? Yeah, I mean, I remember the day I got out, I was cutting myself again, so that didn't work. And wow. and then there was this, it was just like the way it was talked about in my family was it was like, we either don't talk about it or we're just gonna like sweep it under the rug and make light of it. So I remember feeling mocked about it a little bit and just sort of like brushed off and getting the message implicitly or explicitly that, that I was kind of on my own with this and that I shouldn't be, like it was selfish, to feel this way and it was a burden and all this stuff so I was just trying to like keep it together yeah well that's that's awful one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your health care that's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So then... By the age of 16, how are you going with your life at that point? So at that point, I was finally getting um, really fed up with my stepdad and him yep. hitting me and all this stuff. So I called my dad and I was like, look, this is what's happening. Can I live with you? He didn't believe me at first, which we still talk about. Like there's, we've had to make amends. He's made amends and apologized, but he didn't believe me. I convinced him. I went and moved out there to Colorado from Wisconsin and pretty much right away just became like the rebellious teenager, like in any way that you could think of, right? Like cigarettes and weed. And then that turned into hard drugs. And then that turned into sneaking out of the house and hanging out with guys 10 years older than me and just lying and running around. And again, it was just all of this unhandled trauma and like emotional stuff and and the drugs and stuff just felt like medicine i knew that i had this depression and i knew that i had this problem feeling suicidal but when i was high or when i was drunk i felt like i could manage that and that was actually like me just trying to be normal in the world yeah well it's like trying to manage your own nervous system i suppose isn't it yeah because when you go through that stuff you you end up being such a mess and your nervous system's a wreck and it's just a way of calming yourself down i suppose so did you yeah. get did you get drug addicted? Yeah, nothing about the way that I drank or used was normal from the very beginning. Like I was chugging whiskey out of bottles as a teenager and blacking out and you know hurting myself just real extreme. Definitely having those scenarios that most people would call a rock bottom situation and they were just happening for me over and over again from the beginning. Wow. And so yeah. had you found like a group of kids that you were hanging out with? Is this why you started doing all of these things? You think you've sort of found a group of kids that were doing similar stuff yeah I had I found some high school friends that you know would we'd sneak out together or party and then we had connected with some people that were 
older than us, like they were 20 somethings with their own apartment. And I don't know how we became friends with them, but we did. <laughs> so it was just like the place to be every weekend. And and how, do, how was your dad coping with all this? Oh, my poor dad. He didn't know what to do, right? Like I told you he'd seen us maybe once a year. And now all of a sudden I'm, I'm in his house. He's remarried at this point. She was very like, I don't know about this, but she, she gave it the go ahead. And they did try very hard to like, let me be myself and that, you know, they let me do my hair the way I wanted and listen to the music that I wanted. I was into the punk rock scene. So it was blue hair and mohawks and crazy clothes and piercings. And they didn't mind that stuff so much. But then when the behavioral stuff started coming up, they were like, we have no idea what to do. Yeah. And I eventually ran away from home because I, I got word that there was talk of sending me to some kind of camp, like sending me away to get treatment. And I didn't want to do that. So I ran away. Okay. So what happened when you ran away? Um, I was 16 and I had this boyfriend who had a bus ticket to some town and he's like, go to this town and it's friendly to kids like you and you'll find your way basically. Wow. So I, yeah. So I went to this random town and just like got off the bus and sat on a bench and just sort of hung out. And this girl came up to me who she was a punk too. Like I had patches on my clothes of bands and she was like, oh, I like that band too. So we started talking and she said, a bunch of us are going to Milwaukee to live in this punk house together and you can come. And so I went with them and stayed in this house. And then I actually went back to live with my mom for a while and then left there right away because it was still the same shit. And then just kind of been on my own making it work ever since. Wow, that's amazing. How did you end up getting your stuff together at some point? Um, well, I've always worked. Like I had my first job when I was 14 and then I waited tables. And so I always was very like scrappy and resourceful that way and willing to get a job. And so I'd piece things together, like I'd get a job and then I'd have enough for an apartment and I'd live there. I remember one time I stayed in a women's shelter and then um, got public assistance to get into an apartment. And then I worked two jobs and gradually took over the whole rent myself. And I was really proud of that. But at this point, like my addiction was in full swing and it was just getting worse. And so anytime I got anything together, it would fall apart. Um, and, and a lot of it was like staying way too long in terrible relationships because I didn't have the money to leave, you know, moving in with the guy because he had a place that was kind of a pattern as well. Just trying to like keep a roof over my head. Yeah. And what were you like at that stage? Were you really shy still? I was still very, very painfully awkward and shy, but I drank so much that that gave me, I had tons of friends. I was at all the parties. I was rowdy and loud and rambunctious, but none of that, that was all just a facade, right? Like yeah. the real me was like terribly uncomfortable without alcohol. I was attracting terrible relationships. I felt like I couldn't really keep friendships well because I was never really like showing the real me. So it was still very miserable and still pretty depressed and suicidal too. Like it would come and go in waves yeah, depending on where the circumstances were. But yeah, that stuff never really got fixed. It just sort of would go underground and I kind of learned how to act a little bit better, but still yeah. super uncomfortable. So how did you get over your drug addiction? Oh man, it's so funny. I actually got sober in a liquor store. <laughs> ah. I had just been in, I was completely demoralized and dead inside. It felt like the suicidal stuff was like back full force. I was in the most abusive, terrible, frightening relationship yet. I was blacking out constantly. I had a minimum wage job making sandwiches that I was about to get fired from. Just everything was terrible. And I went into the liquor store because I was drinking around the clock and I was paying with change and my hands were shaking. It's like eight in the morning. And this woman who worked there was just looking at me and she was always very kind to me. I felt like her demeanor with me was just like non-judgmental. And I just ended up crying to her. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I can't live like this. I'm so miserable. I've completely messed everything up. I can't stop drinking. And she came around from the counter and she sat and listened to me for like 30 minutes. And then she told me that she was an AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and that blew my mind. And I think if anyone else had told me about AA, I would have just brushed them off. But the fact that she could own this liquor store and not even care about all the alcohol surrounding her, that meant something to me. Because I, I didn't think I'd ever be able to get sober because I thought I would just be craving it the whole time. And so to have someone like her that was surrounded by it and just didn't even care and she was sober for 10 years at that point. And I was like, I need that. I want that. And so she told me where to go to a meeting. And I went on my own that next day. 
And then she took me to a meeting later and I've been sober ever since. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. And we're still friends too. Yeah. <laughs> so she was like this angel that just came down and, and what an amazing person to meet. Yeah. And she mentored me in so many ways too, about being confident and being a woman that could stand proud and be myself. Like she, she was just tremendous. She was such a good example of just a confident and, you know, just a woman taking care of herself in the world. And yeah, she was great. She loved me so well. She was like, like a mom slash big sister slash cool aunt, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and now amazing. I've been sober. Yeah. Six years and eight months today. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's congratulations. That's amazing. And I just think it's just one person that comes into your life because how many people before that person had done anything like that for you? Nobody. It's so funny. It started with the listening. Like I had known about AA before. I had a therapist who was like, look, I can't talk to you until you get this drinking shit under control. And he gave me the big book, the AA big book. And it just sat on my shelf. But yeah, that piece of, I had been sensing for months before we even had this encounter that she wasn't judging me, that she cared about me. She'd have this look in her eyes of just like, compassion. And of course, later I learned it's because she had been there, done that, and she knew exactly what I was going through, but it wasn't on her to say it until I was ready. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that story because it's like, if people are looking to help someone else going through a situation, like don't underestimate what your kindness and listening and non-judgment and compassion can really do for a person. Yes. And I think that's a really good one to remember, isn't it? That we don't need to go in and try and solve everything for another person. We just have to say we're there for you and, and just let them know that there's somebody that cares, I suppose. So when you go to AA, how do they actually do those meetings? Is it you, you go there and you listen to each other's stories? How does it actually work? Well, every AA meeting gets to kind of run itself. Like there's different formats. So, but generally like some AA meetings will be big book studies where you're just like reading through the book. Some will be step studies where it's a different, cause you know, it's a 12 step program. Okay. So it'll be a different step every week or something like that. But generally it, the whole thing is that wherever, whatever our background is, we all have this common situation, this common problem and a common solution. So the really good meetings are just focused on the solution, right? Like we talk about if there's a speaker meeting where someone's just sharing their story for the whole meeting, the, the format there is what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. And so there's no like goals or agenda beyond people working the steps wherever they are in that. But the meetings are just people coming together where they can be 100% honest with a room full of people that know exactly what they're going through and what it's like and how our brains are just kind of different. And we can like kind of get that out in the meeting and like hold each other accountable and share a solution. And so once you got yourself sober and obviously you probably still have a lot of stuff going on in your head and probably haven't got an amazing job or anything. What, what was the next steps for you? Gosh. So when I got sober, I was still living with this abusive boyfriend who I couldn't leave. Like he, he would physically restrain me from leaving. It was, it was that kind of relationship. So my next step was to just like stay super focused on the program, like show up at my job and just do my best so that I could keep that. And then I called around a therapist and I didn't have any money, but I was like leaving messages saying, I just got sober. I don't think I'm going to be able to stay sober without this extra help. There's more going on, you know, than just yeah. getting sober. And I found this amazing therapist and she offered to see me on a sliding scale. And then later she found a grant that I qualified for, for victims or survivors of trauma. So I ended up not having to pay for therapy for most of the time. Cause she, she just knew I was really willing to make a change and she wanted to support that. And so I was able to see her for the whole time. We just wrapped it up, but I was with her for six years. Wow. That's amazing so that, that you, that you did that, that you put yourself out there and said, I need help. And okay. you know, I don't really have the money for it. And then this next angel comes along and says, let me help you with that. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? That you have people yeah. that would step up and help you that way. This is how everything in my life has been unfolding. It's been exactly that way. Like every time I just take that step and try to go for something that I want or need, the universe just like rushes in to fill that. And I believe, and this is why I became a coach. And this is what I help people with too. It's like, 
we can't wait for like all the circumstances to feel perfect until we take that jump, right? We have to like trust that something's going to meet us and help us through it. And everything big in my life has been that way. You know, leaving that relationship, the fact that I even got sober, finding that therapist, going back to college, moving into a nicer apartment, like all these things came when I like kind of went for it before I was totally ready and didn't know how it was going to line up. And it's just always looked like that. It's so, it's still scary, you know, to do, there's yes. still a part of me that wants to like get it all ready first. It just doesn't work that way. Not for me anyways. <laughs> so what are the, the things that you think you have to change about the way you think about yourself? What are the big things that you've really had to change from before and after? Well, a big one, and I, I think this will be a lifelong thing, letting this soak in is that I'm worthy. Like I'm enough. You're enough. We're, we're all of us like perfect and enough and worthy. And I think that gets tossed around to where a lot of us might hear it and kind of roll our eyes. Like, yeah, yeah. I love myself. Self-love, but truly like understanding that on a deep level, like there's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing, you know, like, yeah, we make mistakes and we have situations happening that we want to fix or improve, but who I am as a core. I was just operating my whole life out of there's some, I believed like God made a mistake. I thought I was just beyond repair, beyond hope. I was worthless. So just really like switching that around has been pretty radical. Just being like, no, I, I belong here. I have a purpose. I'm lovable just the way I am. I don't have to earn it. And I have something of value to give too. Yeah, absolutely. I just think that it's interesting how when we don't feel any sort of self-worth, how it just changes everything about who we are and what we think and how we operate in the world. It's yeah. such a big one, isn't it? It's what yeah. we put up with. Yeah. Like, like I never for a second think that I deserved those abusive partnerships that I found myself in, but I absolutely made it okay for that stuff to happen. If that makes sense. Like this isn't victim blaming, but it's like, that's all I thought I was worth. And if a guy came to me like that today, like full of red flags, I wouldn't even, I don't even think someone like that could be on my radar today. Cause I just wouldn't even like, there'd be no attention. Yeah. There's no energy there. But before those are just exactly what I was calling in. Cause that's what I thought I was, that's what I thought I deserved and what I was worth. So it made sense. I think people are just mirrors for us, like showing us what we think about ourselves. And in that way, I've actually been able to forgive a lot of those men because they were just showing me how low I, how little I thought of myself really. Yes. And I mean, that's kind of, that's like, it could be its own podcast, like what's really going on and, and stuff like that. Like there are people out there who are narcissist or selfish or have their own mental health stuff, right? Like I'm not trying to excuse bad behavior <laughs> by any means, but there's something like, I don't attract that anymore. I don't, I'm in an amazing relationship now that's light years away from anything I ever thought was even possible. It's dreamy. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> that's so good. And tell me about your mom and dad now. What sort of relationship do you have with, with each of those? My dad and I are really close. My dad has always been really good about talking about stuff. Like he, he didn't shame me for my feelings. He could get frustrated sometimes because I am so like emotional and we'd get in fights when I was a teenager and I'd yell and cry, but he was always, he'd always try. Like he, he was always open. And so we've had talks. He's apologized. He's told me why things were the way they were. Like we've just had really good talks and that's super important to me. And so we're very close today, even though he lives in Australia. My mom, I don't know what can be done there. I recently called her to make my amends. As many people know, that's part of the program. And, and there just wasn't anything really left as far as like repair. Like once we did that, it, we, it had just been so long since we talked, there still seems to be this sense that like, she doesn't like me that much and that's fine. Like that's been good work for me to understand that like, just because someone's a parent or has a certain relationship doesn't mean really anything about how it should be today or, or how it's going to go. And so it's very possible that this mother and daughter, like we might never talk again and that could be for the best, you know? I'm mm -hmm. trying to, my work today is to try to keep the door open, like the door of my heart. I try to keep it open a crack, you know? It's not my business to decide how something's gonna end. And I definitely don't wanna ever shut anyone out because I'm mad at them or whatever. So I've forgiven her and understood that, you know, I had a part to play in it as well and, and then just see what happens from there. I'm just trying to keep it open but we're not, oh, we don't talk. Yeah. I love that though. I really love that you keep your heart open because, well, if you can't forgive people and you, you have a cold closed heart, it's not going to do you any good because we need to forgive and just 
let that go, let that energy go and just move forward. Otherwise, when we're holding on to it, it's, it, well, it's taking up too much energy, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I'm sure you've heard this, but like when we try to close ourselves, when we try to protect ourselves from pain or shut someone out of it, out of our hearts, we shut everything out. We can't pick and choose. Like we can't just build a wall against the bad stuff. We're building a wall against the love and the joy and the beauty as well. And so that's my work today is to stay invested in keeping that heart open and to keep all the protective barriers off of it because it's infinitely more joyous and it's plenty safe to just be in love as much as possible. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. I really love that. So what do you think are the important things that we should give to our kids? Communication is obviously a really big one because you're saying that the communication that you got with your dad was really important and for your relationship with him. What other mm. things do you think are important? The main thing that comes to mind right now is accepting your child for who and how they are as much as possible, right? If they like to be alone and reading, encourage that. If they want to be making art, encourage that. If they want to make music, like there's so many ways that parents can just accept their children and love them and nurture them and say like, yes, go do that, be that. Um, and I think that is what definitely what I was lacking and what I was so hungry for and what I've been repairing now for myself, like trying to give that to myself and what I think so many kids are just wanting to be accepted. Can you just love me for being how I am, right? Instead, so many parents kind of make it their job to mold them and change them and push them and judge them. And it's like, no, that's not your job. Just love them and let them flourish and be how they are going to be. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. So on your journey, you've obviously had a lot of therapy. What other mindfulness practices are important for you and your healing? Definitely making art. So when I first got sober, I've always been an artist and that absolutely went out the window when I was in my addiction. But it was always kind of like the spark of like, if I had any joy left, if I had anything to try to hope for, it would be making art. And I was able to heal so much just from like throwing myself into my art practice in early sobriety that I ended up studying art therapy in school a little bit. I'm not an art therapist, but I was interested in that and might still go on to do that. So creativity and art is a huge thing. Repairing my relationship with something bigger than me. So call it God, call it universe, higher power, whatever. Restoring that and healing that and cultivating a relationship with that spiritual piece was huge. Nature, getting outside. I meditate um, and then coaching, like I became a coach because I was getting coached and using self-coaching tools on my, on my brain, <laughs> like mind management paired with my 12 step program and a spiritual practice. I feel like I'm absolutely unstoppable and oh, happier. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm just, that's why I got so stoked about teaching people. And I'm trying, my dream is to incorporate coaching with art, right? So creativity coaching, maybe, I don't know, but bring those two things, like manage your mind and be creative and you'll just feel, it's amazing. Like it feels better. I, I feel like everything lines up. So those are uh, the- That's so awesome. I just feel, I can just feel the joy. <laughs> you know, I can see the joy and I can feel the joy in everything that you're saying there. So that's, that sounds awesome if you can, if you could get that going. So tell us about that because you have a business called Kick Ass With Both Feet. Yes. And yeah, so tell us about, a little bit about what you're doing and where we can find you. Okay, so kick ass with both feet is just the idea of like helping people take shit to the next level. It came from a friend when I was still in my addiction and he was sober and he was always saying like there's no one-footed ass kicking allowed. He'd always encourage me to get out there and live my fullest potential, right? So once I got sober, my life was still kind of mediocre, right? With the relationships and the, the money wasn't there. And I just realized like, I didn't get sober for this. And so kicking ass with both feet is just like, take it to the next level, right? Like you've been through hell, now, now what's next? What are you really here for? And I talk about how the two pillars, the two feet that we stand on are your art, your creative process, letting that shine and being willing to feel any feeling. So that's kind of the core of the, the thought work that I do is our thoughts create our feelings and can we be willing to feel any emotion and if we are we can do anything so yeah right now i'm just coaching one-on-one -on -one. i'm on facebook i have a business page called kick ass with both feet or you can just find me or if anyone can email me too at kickass with both feet at gmail.com and i just love it like i have 
a bunch of clients right now. I still have room for one-on-one -on -one coaching and I do free mini sessions to just see like where you're at and give you kind of an overview of what we would do together. And I'm really excited about the way that I coach because I don't just get you to your results, but I give you the tool and I tell you exactly what I'm doing to get you there so that when we don't work together anymore, you can be off and running and doing it on your own. So you're going to know exactly like what we're doing together and then you'll be able to do it for yourself as well which i think is huge oh that sounds amazing and i think people should definitely check out your page because i've i've seen some of your videos and you chatting about different topics and you've got a lot of good stuff to say so i was really yeah. like wow this is awesome yeah it's, it's really thank good you. so amanda thank you so much for sharing your story today it's a hard one but i'm just so happy to see that you've come through it and you're thriving yeah. and you're so full of joy and everything is going so well for you and thank you for sharing everything with us thank you don it was really a pleasure and I, i'm happy what you're doing and this story had a happy ending and i think that's great that that's what's getting that's the main takeaway right yeah <laughs> like, absolutely. I, have that. I totally believe yeah. that so thank you thank you so much for being here Please check the show notes for all the links related to this podcast, including book recommendations. If you have a story to share, questions about this episode, or want to connect in any way, I would love to chat. Please come and find me on Instagram at mybigloveproject. And please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. Can you think of one person whose life might change a tiny bit in a positive way? by hearing this episode please go ahead and share it with someone you know needs to hear it these stories are so important you are such an incredible soul because you are you you are unique your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story your time is precious and i so appreciate you being here thank you for joining me i'll catch you next week Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.